I'm just driving nails in my coffin Lordy, driving those nails over you You're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. In fact, they've actually come up with another end of the world, and it's called California's Water Futures Index. Did you know that you can get rich off droughts and wildfires? You know, the kinds of things that climate change causes? Yet, those horrible disasters can actually make you rich. And why go broke just because of global warming when you can cash in? Look, it's a win-win situation for everybody. We know there's going to be issues with water scarcity due to climate change. We've seen prices skyrocket during crises. Why not insulate ourselves against those high prices by buying water at lower rates now through water futures? That way, say you're a farmer. When water prices go up, go through the roof. You will not you will not only be able to afford that very high-priced water, but you would have made a killing while your neighbor's farm and family struggle. See? The market came up with a solution for climate change. Finally, it wasn't capitalism that caused global warming at all. It was capitalism that actually can save us from it. Problem is, of course, it's not like small farmers have all this money lying around to invest in water futures, and you probably don't either. They barely have enough to keep their farm running. But big agriculture certainly has excess cash, and they can definitely sink huge amounts of on-hand cash into water futures. And in doing so, they create a a market that rewards investors while the planet burns to a cinder. We'll learn just how frightening the concept of water futures is in a few when we speak with Ray Levy Ueda, who wrote the Baffler article, A Bleak Future for Water in California Climate Change Gives Rise to a New Commodity. Ray is a Bay Area-based freelance writer whose writing primarily focuses on activism and movement work. She also writes about food, food justice, farming, and restaurants. You can follow Ray on Twitter at Ray Levy Ueda and find out more about Ray at her website, RayLevyUeda.com. That's Ray Levy, U-Y-E-D-A. Also on today's show, I'll be wrapping up my three-part series on the passing of my biggest brother, Matt Mertz, last week. In today's final installment, I rat out my brother. Yep, me. I narked on him. Snitched. Yeah, me. Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. We'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week as well. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for your weekend? Uh, yeah, there's actually... An, I know you don't have, like, TikTok and Instagram on your phone. I know, I know you don't have a phone. Perhaps <laughs> there you go. You're not, you're not go. maybe on the sort of cutting edge of uh, <laughs> content creation out there. But there's a uh, content creator whose stuff I've been, like, really into lately. So I think I'm going to be checking out more of their work. You ever heard of uh, W.C. Fields? <laughs> yes. Man, every time... Uh, does that hat and cane thing? I'm cracking up over here. <laughs> I've, I'm literally been the last few nights with insomnia, 
was watching W.C. Fields YouTube videos on my phone in bed at like 3 o'clock in the morning. There is a great scene, I think it's in the movie My Little Chickadee, and this kid who's playing a brat, and he's playing the guy who's annoyed by the brat. He's got a balloon, and W.C. Fields just goes over and pops the kid's balloon with a cigar, and it's a pretty hilarious stunt. I read later on that that was not supposed to be in the script, and W.C. Fields hated that kid so much that he just couldn't stand him, and that's what led him to popping the balloon. Who knows if that's an apocryphal story, totally made-up fiction or not, but I love that scene in My Little Chickadee. My exciting plans for the weekend include being very, very depressed. I plan on running the full gamut of depression, from anger to anxiety, and if I'm not already exhausted by then, deep depression, then... Getting hammered and being hung, hung over, and Alex, I want to thank you for the fifth of a few distilleries rye whiskey that you left over here for me the other day. That's going to really help in me in my uh, treatment and recovery, let's call it that. I, I, did I say get drunk and be hung over? Because I really did mean treatment and recovery. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? Uh, this week's question from hell is, what is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021 what is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021 uh, get your answers in by the end of the interview today and uh we'll go, we got body bags covered for crucial responses <laughs> i think that's been a theme on this one <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question hell wins whatever piece of this is hell merchandise they want uh you can see all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support remember we are completely listener supported without you we've got nothing so thanks for your support you can email us your answer you can leave it on facebook page page. You can tweet it to us, but again, you have to have your answer to us by the end of today's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff, here's the quiet part loud, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We got an email at chuck at thisishell.com from Andrew last week while I was laid up with a bad back and unable to do the show, which really sucked. My bad back sucked, not the email. Andrew writes, hey guys, I just made a relocation from Georgia to Texas. And our listening audience in Southeast United States is growing every day. And my life seems to be all over the place, in boxes and in moving trucks. But I was driving into work today, and I put on This Is Hell, and despite everything being new and different, it felt the same. Thanks to you guys. What you do is really great, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate your work. P.S., with as much airtime as we gave the debate about having politicians on This Is Hell, we might as well have just hosted Shama Salant on the show. Okay, hot take here. But I am all for interviewing progressive voices who get dragged in the mainstream media. But I just came to this opinion recently after someone said we could just listen to politicians on other mediums. The truth is we can't. After I listened to Jacobin Radio's interview of Shama Salant earlier this month, and frankly... It was the worst interview I've ever listened to recently. And the whole time I was thinking, man, I really would like to hear Chuck conduct this interview with Shama Salant. Thanks for everything, Andrew. By the way, we did get more emails from Shama Salant's people over the last couple of weeks requesting that she appear on the show. I think we've now received four or five of these. Andrew, you may be correct that we have actually spent more time telling you how listeners do not want politicians on the show than we would have actually spent time interviewing Shama Suwan. And I have not heard good things about the interviews she has done. But maybe Andrew's right. 
Maybe that is not Shama's fault at all, but the fault of those who interviewed her. So thanks for the kind words, Andrew, but we are going to fulfill the vast majority of our listeners' wishes and continue our rule that is really more of a guideline of not having anyone from big politics or big business on the show, as they are the only ones granted access to the establishment media. And this is not the media. This is hell. Remember, you can email us, message us via Facebook or Twitter with your thoughts and suggestions on the show. And if you do, we'll likely read your message on air. And if we have your guest suggestion on the show, we'll personally thank you on the show for your suggestion. Coming up, California's nightmarish Water Futures Index. We'll have Jeff Dorchin doing a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff hears the quiet part loud. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? Leave your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have the answer, your answer by the end of today's show. The winner of this week's question from hell will get whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can find all of our stuff at thisishell.com. Uh, when you click on support. <laughs> and later I'll admit to ratting out my brother and we'll tell you what's happening tomorrow on Patreon and who will be on next week's show. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. What if I told you you could get rich off wildfires, drought, you could cash in on climate change? Would you? Is it a good idea for the market to reward people for betting that water will become increasingly scarce with global warming? And what could this kind of market-based solution mean for not only the planet, but for us dumb humans who live here? Here to help us understand what's happening with water futures, Ray Levy Ueda wrote the Baffler article, A Bleak Future for Water in California. Climate change gives rise to a new commodity. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ray. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Ray is a Bay Area-based freelance writer whose writing primarily focuses on activism and movement work. She also writes about food, food justice, farming, and restaurants. You can find her on Twitter at Ray Levy Ueda, and you can find more about Ray at her website, Ray Levy Ueda. That's U-Y-E-D-A. Dot com. You write, as of December 7th, the availability of water in California can be bet on or against by way of what's called a futures contract, which allows investors to make a claim on the future price of water. These are valued to the NASDAQ VELS uh, water, California Water Index, which measures the volume weighed average price of water, meaning that investors, farmers, read agribusiness owners and climate change onlookers can profit off of growing water scarcity as droughts worsen investors will be able to reap the benefits of the realities of climate change so ray what's wrong with getting rich off of climate change isn't that better than having climate change cause poverty the corporations that are going to you know hedge water risk on the futures index don't see climate change as the risk, they see the financial risk of spending more money on water than they want to as um, taking precedence over growing climate disasters. So yes, I think it's very much a problem. So uh, how could betting on water affect your and my, the average person's access to or quality of or the price of water for you and I? How can these water futures have a direct impact on your and my water consumption? Well, I think the way that I think about it first is that this, the ability to bet on water futures really signals a change in how we understand and appreciate water. Um, 
like I touched on in the piece, you know, water rights, um, corporations, municipalities, agribusiness owners have been able to buy water rights for quite some time. But the idea of betting on the idea of water and the future of water is it marks a change in that. Um, I think that we should all be scared that scarcity of water is, uh, is, is, what, is what they're playing with here. You mentioned that, yes, water was subject to speculation and market forces before the establishment of a futures index, but this is a market change, making water appear to gold and crude oil. So why is this situation now different from what it was before? How is this new speculation different from the old speculation? Well, previously, water was seen as a resource that could be bought and sold. And with the futures index, it's now seen as a commodity. And I think that um, the idea of water as a resource means that it's serving us and that we can all benefit from it. And it you know, goes into growing our crops. And um, you know, when we turn the faucet on, it's the bathtub or the sink, and we can clean our dishes, and we can drink clean water that comes out of the tap. But now that water is a commodity, it means that people can keep buying water as much as they want. And it also sort of creates this idea that with commodities, you know, in a, under a capitalist United States, commodities can be built or made um, and water can't be made. You know, a lot of people are trying to figure out how to create water out of humid air or, you know, keep pumping water out of our um, water tables underground. But if we don't have a way to replenish our water system, then we will just keep purchasing water and using it until it, until clean water actually runs out. So this is kind of the on-ramp into um, a hellish phase. So uh, what impact did that earlier valuation, because you write, you write in truth, you know, water was for sale long before December in 2015, the total value of water rights leases and sales in California vaulted to nearly $800 million at the height of the worst drought in 500 years. Is there something that happened? It, can we learn from any experience of that valuation uh, prior to water futures and how water futures may have an impact on water availability in the future? Well, I think what we saw in 2015 and with the drought is sort of going to repeat itself in what we see with future water scarcity and that the people who have the ability to purchase their way out of dirty water or water scarcity will be fine. And the people who don't have money to use as a shield against water scarcity will be screwed. And so, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, a similar problem, just it looks different. Right, exactly. In 2015. Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the same process going happening again. So I'm kind of surprised that they're expanding on it. You also point out that a water futures index proposes that climate change is a self-made and ineluctable eventuality while sidestepping the correct accusation that climate change is in part caused by the same forces that give rise to a water futures index. How does a water futures index deny capitalism's deny the market's role in causing climate change? Yeah, I think that part is really interesting because um, the tone of the articles that I read announcing the water futures index it's sort of the same tone that we see um, in the Silicon Valley. And I'm from what's now called the Silicon Valley. I was growing up before it was what it looks like now. Um, but the big word that everybody likes to use is innovation. And the idea that we have to innovate our systems to make them more efficient, more profitable, quote unquote, better. 
um, without really evaluating why we want things to be efficient and who that efficiency benefits and what innovation really means and what better for people means. Um, and so this Water Futures Index is thought of as an innovation of climate change. And I think that's a really sneaky, you know, unfortunately brilliant rebranding of climate change to say that if the problem of climate change isn't the fact that, you know, a million people in California don't have access to clean water or that one and a half million people in California have water debt, like they actually have debt from not being able to pay water bills, even though water is legally a human right, um, I think that, you know, further signals that climate change is just not thought of as a problem to the market. The market will bend and, and shift to meet the needs of the people who have the ability to participate. That capitalism can be successful even in the face of climate change, which is just disturbing. And I, yeah, and, and capitalism is, is successful because of climate change. Right, exactly. Uh, the Guardian reported back in May of 2019, a total of 13% of Americans polled in a 23-country survey conducted by the YouGov Cambridge Globalism Project agreed with the statement that the climate is changing, but human activity is not responsible at all. A further 5% said the climate was not changing. Only Saudi Arabia and Indonesia had a higher proportion of people doubtful of man-made climate change. Americans were also more likely than any other Western country's citizens polled to say they did not know whether the climate was changing or people were responsible. Only a third take the view that human activity is the dominant cause. What impact do you think of Waters Futures Index could have on climate change denialism and the acceptance of the science that humans are the driving force in climate change? Um, that's a really big question. I think that, again, I think we're going to see an exacerbation of, of what we're seeing now. Um, and I think in that people will continue to, consumers who don't, you know, who aren't working in the food production system, so who aren't farm workers, who aren't, um, producers, growers, farmers, and then who are agribusiness industry executives, they won't see the price of water on the back end, but I think we'll all see the price of produce and other goods go up because the price of water will continue to go up. So I think, you know, that's one thing that we're seeing. Um, but I think there's a very real possibility that maybe we won't see anything change. You know, I think that a lot, like both Democrats and Republicans, in different ways, do a really good job of, um, of of saying that climate change isn't as big of a deal as it is. Um, and I, and, and in terms of Democrats setting the tone in the first hundred days, we haven't seen from the Biden administration a lot of urgency on acting on climate change. And so, yeah, I guess I'm not I'm not super hopeful that this will necessarily impact people's opinions. I think that. Maybe most people don't know that there is a water futures index and even more, you know, won't be able to or won't have an interest in, you know, betting on the future of water. They'll just be victims of it. And so um, I think that the unfortunate reality of that is we're all just sort of in this waiting game of, you know, figuring out what our legislators will do to make sure that um, you can't buy and, and trade water shares. Is there any suggestion, any talk of that kind of campaign happening on Capitol Hill? Are there, are there any politicians talking about reining in this water futures index, or are they just happy it's existing? 
You know, I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not aware of any, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the immediacy of like COVID and other issues um, is, is taking priority. Yeah, I was wondering if the Water Futures Index was actually being put into place, taking advantage of this very vulnerable time that we're in due to the pandemic. You write corn, soybeans, milk, cattle, and wheat have all already been subject to futures trading. They are also components of a nationwide agricultural operation that's responsible for approximately 80% of the country's consumptive water use. Over half of the grain grown in the United States goes toward making or feeding the livestock that we eat and all of it is making us sick. Yet 30% of that meat product goes uneaten while at the same time Feeding America estimates that in 2020 over 50 million people were what the federal government considers to be food insecure. That's one in six or seven Americans. How do futures lead to both food waste and food insecurity? Why do futures lead to a system that produces more food than we need, yet also does not actually feed all of humanity. Well, I think the thing is that we already live in an agricultural system of overproduction. Um, so starting back in the 70s, the United States Department of Agriculture really pushed this idea. Um, Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts was really big on saying, get big or get out. And so um, the USDA enacted a lot of policies that encouraged farmers and commodity crop growers to plant as much corn and soybeans as possible to take on debt to do that. Um, and so that really set us off on a downhill slope of growing more grain and commodity crops than we need, needing to do something with all that extra commodity crops, which also gave rise to factory farms. And the debt that farmers took on to do that sort of trapped them into the cycle. And so we have this sort of circular self-fulfilling cycle of overproduction that leads to waste, which leads to CAFOs, which leads to animal waste, which leads to environmental degradation, um, on and on and on. And so the, how the water futures index plays into that is saying that, you know, the problem isn't overproduction of food. The problem isn't that we can't get food where it needs to go. The problem isn't food deserts or that, you know, millions of Americans don't have access to vegetables or fruits or clean drinking water. The problem is that when farmers grow their crops in a drought season or a drought year, that they can't buy their water for cheap enough. Um, and so Water Futures Index will continue to support our system of overproduction of food. So this is, in a way, supposed to protect, insulate farmers from high water prices, potential high water prices in the future when there are when there's scarcity for whatever reason, if it's drought or for whatever market-created reason, there's some sort of scarcity. That way, the small farmer can then, he not only can afford the water when it does go up in price, he may have been able to, he or she may have been able to make money off of it in the meantime. What is the likelihood that a farmer can insulate themselves from the high prices of water through water futures? Um, you know, I don't know an exact answer to that, Chuck. I think the one thing that I would tease out from that question is that it's going to be a whole hell of a lot easier for people who own businesses and agri like large agricultural producers and firms to hedge water risks than it will be for small farms and small farmers who have um, you know, just like much lower um, profit. And, uh, and we know too that 
you know, farm workers who work on these farms, who work in drought seasons, who last year we saw in during a monstrous fire season worked in fields, breathing in smoke day in and day out. Um, these individuals will continue to work while agribusiness owners will bet on water and make money off of the scarcity of water. Yeah, and that's really frightening. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how big of a contributor to climate change water futures could be. What impact do water futures have on the fight against climate change? If we actually transition to electric cars and solar and wind, and if we did something like a Green New Deal or some such thing that refocuses our entire energy grid to clean and sustainable resources, if all that actually did get done, and we still had water futures, what impact would water futures have on climate change? How big of a contributor can water futures be? I mean, I think it can be a major contributor. And I think we, we're we already seeing, you know, disastrous climate um, impact. So in terms of, you know, I live in California. One of the things with California is we have wildfires. And for those who can escape wildfires, like, you know, they can get into their car that they maybe own. They can go to their second home or their third home, or they can stay with a friend or they can purchase a few nights at a hotel. They can escape wildfire, but we're in the midst of a massive crisis of housing in, in, in my state, which means that not everybody can afford to, to leave climate impacts. Um, and so I think water futures, I mean, it, it literally commodifies water and so we're going to see people who can't afford to buy their way out continue to lose, continue to take on debt, um, and, and to suffer. You also point out that water is also fundamentally about land, and land has been tied to money and profit as long as there has been a United States of America. Is water power, and what happens to that power when futures are added into that mix? Does water become even more powerful? Hmm. I don't know necessarily if I would, I would say yes to the question that water is power. I think um, water is manipulated to be power by people with money, agribusiness owners, um, the people who sit on the boards of agribusiness industries, politicians in the same way that water is politicized, but water, I mean, is not inherently political. Um, one, of the, one of the things, I was reading um, Tom Philpott's book, Perilous Bounty, and I was, he mentions in his book that in 1849, with the, um, the rise of the gold rush in California, which also led to a you know, massive wave of colonization um, and a wave of genocide of Native peoples living in California, um, he touches on the fact that when gold, quote, ran out, that that farmers or people who would come for the gold rush then turned to the Central Valley where, you know, most of the country's fruits and vegetables are grown. And they essentially booted, you know, Native peoples living in, in the Central Valley to build their farms and rerouted waterways to irrigate the Central Valley. Um, and so we see a direct connection in the genesis of California of the way that water was used as a fallback option for not having enough gold. So in that sense, you know, water is directly linked to money and power. 
And that's really frightening. And you point out, uh, you're right, to be sure, the cost of land continues to rise, in part because of industrial agricultural processes that increase land scarcity. Blame can also be attributed to real estate investment trusts like the Gladstone Land Corporation, which believes that a lower supply of arable land will lead to higher profitability for most farms and will lead to steady appreciation of value and rental growth. I, I don't mean to be laughing because that's funny. I'm just laughing at the cynicism of this. Does, does the market reward land scarcity and a decline in the amount of land where crops can be grown? Because that would suggest that the market rewards not only food waste and insecurity, but the disappearance of farmland, which would seem like a direct assault on our food supply by the market. Is the market rewarding food inaccessibility? I think, yeah, it definitely is. I think I read that that report by the Gladstone Land Group, and I was just shocked. I, I didn't read that also as cynicism. I read, I read that as sort of almost hope that people who want to buy land can end up making more money off of other people buying up land. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is just, the idea that we can continue to buy land and then continue to strip the land of its natural nutrients of its of its topsoil and ability to um, weather climate crises um, means that we have less and less room to grow healthy foods. And once soil is depleted, we have it becomes becomes honestly just easier to continue to grow commodity crops. And so I think the market is definitely benefiting off the fact that we seem to be snowballing in all of these different, um, all of these different areas of policy, whether it be agriculture, whether it be um, water, whether it be how unregulated Wall Street is. If water futures help those who already have the most money most, as you're pointing out, small farmers probably don't have the amount of money because of the the low profit margins to invest in water futures. But huge agriculture, big agriculture will be able to, industrial agriculture will be able to. They have the excess cash. So what is the impact on inequality and increased poverty with water futures? Well, I think we're seeing um, less and we're seeing fewer and fewer small farms in the United States. Um, you know, I touch, on this, I touch on this in the piece, but the majority of small farmers in the United States don't actually turn a profit. Um, and every year, hundreds of family farms file for bankruptcy. And so the impact of this is that there are fewer and fewer family farms who make use of regenerative agriculture practices, who um, are good to the land, who are good to the animals, um, they're disappearing. And with them is the knowledge of the land that's disappearing, the generational um, and family farm, and the culture of that is also disappearing. And it's allowing agribusinesses to continue to purchase that land that maybe um, the farmer can no longer afford and continue to, to hold their power at the very top of the food chain. You write that Wall Street hedge funds and financial firms gluttonous for the people's suffering pose an additional threat to water access by furtively gobbling up water rights in dry and arid communities in the West. Why are they buying up water rights where presumably there is no water? Um, I think that is directly related 
sort of what we saw with um, Nevada's governor announcing that tech companies would be allowed to effectively create their own cities. Um, the high cost of living in a city, you know, the exorbitant rent in San Francisco, for instance, is really pushing people out. We're seeing more and more people every year move to places like Sacramento, California's capital, to Fresno. Um, we're seeing more people move to Nevada, more people move to Texas. People are just sort of, you know, there's this mass exodus from California happening, um, which means that people are settling in places, you know, in cities and municipalities that are having to explode their, you know, their housing and their grocery stores and their transportation in ways that, and being stretched in ways that they may not be prepared for. But it also means that people are moving to cities that, you know, dry places like Nevada, a desert, where water will have to be shipped in from elsewhere. And so I think it's a really evil and smart move on behalf of these these firms who are buying up water rights where they know that climate change is pushing people out of places that um, where water isn't as scarce. But you also point out that the water futures of many Californians remains uncertain despite a 2012 law that codified every Californian's right to water. This guarantee exists in name only at least 1 million people in 41 of California's 58 counties currently lack access to water that abides by all state and federal safety standards. Is the guaranteed legally defined right to water in California currently being violated? Can can those violations be stopped? Is, is there any oversight, enforcement, allowable penalties in place right now to stop California's right to water from being violated? You know, I'm not sure about over an oversight board for the law, but I think the law is kind of, um, I mean, I think it's an oxymoron, as I mentioned before, and as I mentioned in the piece, you know, 1.6 million residents in California have water debt, you know, uh, over 150,000 of those water debt numbers, $1,000, which for anybody right now, for which for most people are right now, is just money they don't have to spend, um, especially in paying off debt. Um, but if people can have water debt, then it's that runs contradictory to the idea of water being a, a quote-unquote right. So I think that even if the law says water is a human right to Californians, the fact that people can make money off of, um, people can hold water debt means that the law really doesn't mean anything. Yeah, exactly. The law means absolutely nothing, and, which is amazing because they have a law on the books to protect them from the exact violations that they're seeing right now, and the law is not protecting them. You write in rural communities like Lanier and Lindsay in California's San Joaquin Valley, the groundwater is so polluted by chemical runoff from local farming operations that residents have to purchase bottled water out of pocket. If farmers have the right to water, do farms also have the conflicting right to poison water and make it undrinkable? Well, I think that's sort of a complex question because, as I touched on before, like our, our model of agriculture overproduction means that um, everyone in the farming industry has to produce more and more and more in order to make a bare minimum of profit or in order to make a bare minimum of debt repayment, um, even if they're not turning a profit. And so our system really pushes overproduction, which means that it, it, it pushes people to... Um, produce pollution, essentially, and, and produce that runoff that you're talking about. And so I don't think it's necessarily a farm, farmer's individual or even, you know, mid-sized farmer's fault. I think it's a structural issue where our farming industry in, 
supports runoff. We don't have enough backstops in the law to hold um, corporations accountable or to say that cities need to implement better water standards. And we don't have high enough federal water standards. Um, and the USDA at the federal level also doesn't have a national operating um, operating idea in terms of what is allowable for farming runoff. So I really don't think that is necessarily the root of the problem. I think it's more about overproduction and the support of over, overproduction. You write that the property damage and acres burned during each wildfire season are painstakingly measured, evaluated by insurance companies, and hand-wringingly treated as inevitable by politicos. They also tend to receive mass media coverage while other toxins uh, while other toxins produced by wildfires are given less attention, toxic volatile organic compounds like benzene and styrene can seep into water supplies after wildfires, and municipalities often struggle to adequately invest in testing and treatment. Across the state, 1.6 million residents have water debt. At least 150,000 residents owe more than $1,000. Do water futures lead to higher water costs and worse water service? And the poorer the service, the higher the cost. Because, again, I thought the market was supposed to reward good service, not profit from bad service. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the market is, is supposed to, um, I think the market is supposed to support those who are able to invest in the market. I don't really know if it's about good or bad. I think it's just about servicing those who don't need servicing. Um and I think we'll have to wait to see if a water futures index creates higher prices. I mean, at the top of the piece, I talk about, you know, it went live on December 7th. So I think we'll have to wait a few more months to see what happens. And we're just now getting into to spring and to drier seasons. And so I think it'll also be interesting to see how this year's drought, I mean, that drought, um, wildfire season plays into the price of water this summer. I got one last question for you, Ray. Eh, let's make it two. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that water futures usher in a new arena in which the fight for the planet and for ourselves will be fought. And we should heed those who have long warned us of water's fate. Indigenous water protectors told us that water was life as they risked their own to wrest oil pipelines from the land and young people now leading protests and demonstrations against climate profiteers like BlackRock have made the connection between climate health, uh, human health, water access, and water integrity, despite having had a fraction of the time to read the research as our elected officials. What impact can that water protector ethos, what what impact do you think that water uh, protective protector ethos could have on fighting climate change? I mean, I think it's everything. Um, a lot of what I have learned about about water and about the value of water has come from um, Native peoples, activists, Native scholars, authors, artists, um, and and the knowledge and the generation generational knowledge that they have shared. And I think that if we're if we're looking for ways to address this crisis and fight back against this crisis, we have to. What I'm trying to communicate in this paragraph is that we have to look for the people who have already been doing the work and have already been successful in doing the work. And who have already withstood the the violence of pushing back against that work, um, and so I, I mean I think there are really great examples of community work happening 
um, and pushing back against water scarcity like we see in Flint. I mean, Flint still doesn't have clean water. Um, we're still not seeing the progress we need to see there. You know, we're still seeing in Minnesota, there's currently a fight going on to stop the development of an oil pipeline. It's called Line 3. Um, and Native peoples and Native leaders, along with non-Native people, are, are pushing back against the modern-day colonization of um, Anishinaabe land in Minnesota. Um, and then, so I think we just need to keep looking for the people who already have the solutions and, just push, and supporting their work. Um, I mean, that can be done by retweeting something, that can be done by writing your elected official, that can be done by donating um, money to certain like community funds. I know that there's an organization called Dig Deep. They operate in the Navajo Nation because one in three Navajo don't have access to running water or a toilet. And so Dig Deep um, literally brings water to people who, um, for many reasons, um, have been stripped of their access to water. And so I think there's a lot of ways to support work that's already going on. Um, and I think, you know, it's really easy to become cynical. And, and when I first heard about the Water Futures Index, I felt, I felt cynical myself. But um, I think a lot of activist teachings tell us that we have to remain hopeful in the face of crises. And so, and so supporting work that's already happening is a really good way of materializing that hope. I've got one last question for you, Ray. We've been speaking with Ray Levy-Ueda, who wrote the Baffler article, A Bleak Future for Water in California Climate Change Gives Rise to a New Commodity. Ray's work has appeared in The New Republic, The Guardian, Yes Magazine, Teen Vogue, and elsewhere. You can find her on Twitter at Ray Levy-Ueda, and you can find out more about Ray at her website, RayLevyUeda.com. Ray is a Bay Area-based freelance writer whose writing primarily focuses on activism and movement work. She also writes about food, food justice, farming, and restaurants. One last question for you, Ray, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response and I'm uh, well you well, begin <laughs> yeah. uh, so at the beginning of your article you start off by saying in our moment of rabid for sale ism it would be easy to react to the announcement that even the future of water in California is for sale with a glib of course it is what ability do we have to stop a water futures market or any futures market? What you know? What about one on air or sunlight or I, I I got it. Human life. We can bet human futures depending on zip codes, the nine-digit ones, of course. How slippery is the water futures slope toward all aspects of life and humanity being the target of gambling and Wall Street speculation? Um, yeah, I do hate this question. Um, I mean, I think that it's a, I mean, obviously it's a really slippery slope, but I think we're living in an age where, where nothing is, is really protected. I mean, human life is, is degraded in a lot of ways. Um, and I think about that in terms of the fact that we lack a right to healthcare, we lack a right, you know, a universal right to housing. We clearly lack a universal right to clean water, clean air, and clean food. Um, and we see this with, you know, the Trump administration stripping a lot of environmental protections um, and, and Democrats sort of waffling on what climate action looks like. So, I mean, I think it, it doesn't bode well for us, but it's not, it's not new and it's not surprising, which means that I think we already have 
the tools and the knowledge of, of how to push back um, against what's going on. I mean, my personal belief is that, um, you know, it's going to be a combination of on the ground organizing and activism and also electoral organizing. Um, you know, we have a lot of people in office who, who clearly don't support a human right to clean water and a human right to housing and a human right to healthcare. Um, and so, I mean, the bad, the bad part is that there's nothing that an individual can do to, you know, make a water futures index not a thing, but collectively we have a, a lot of power to change that. Ray, thank you so much for being on our show. This is really great writing. The conversation that we had this morning, I really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for being on our show. Again, Ray Levy-Ueda wrote the Baffler article, A Bleak Future for Water. You can find her on Twitter at Ray Levy-Ueda and find out more about Ray at her website, RayLevyUeda.com, all of which are linked at our site right now. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. It's podcast shortly after at the same place. Because of our conversation with Raquel Varela this week on her new book, A People's History of Europe from World War One to Today, tomorrow on Patreon, we are playing another of our conversations with historian Howard Zinn, this one from back in July of 2007. Howard's book, A Power Governments Cannot Suppress, had just been published. He had also recently posted the articles, Put Away the Flags and Are We Politicians or Citizens, wherein Howard argues, except for the rare few, our elected representatives are politicians and will surrender their integrity, claiming to be realistic. We are not politicians, we are citizens. We have no office to hold on to, only our consciences, which insist on telling the truth. That history suggests is the most realistic thing a citizen can do. In other words, Howard saw citizens becoming politicians once in office, and that's the worst thing a citizen can do when representing their constituency. Meanwhile, immediately following our most recent Patreon podcast back two Fridays ago, I went home and uh, awaiting me at my doorstep, was the January 14th edition of the small town newspaper I got as a gift subscription last year, the Northern Michigan Weekly, the Houghton Lake Resorter. Yes, it took over a month for the paper to take the five and a half hour drive from Houghton Lake to Chicago. And in that mid-January issue, readers are going off on the January 6th siege of the U.S. Capitol. If you've been following my coverage of the Resorter on Patreon, you know it's in Trump country, with locals voting 2-1 to one for Trump in 2016 and 2020. You also know, just before the siege, locals seem to be stepping back from their rabid support for Trump. So wait until you hear what they're saying after the nonsense that happened in D.C. in early January. But you can only find out what's happening in small-town America following the events of January 6th in our 2007 interview with Howard Zinn by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Wes, Jeff, and Doug. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff hears the quiet part loud. I ratted out my brother, my biggest brother, the one who passed away last week, Matt Mertz. I snitched on him, and not just to anyone, but to our parents. I was a total narc. Here's why. Matt had gone off to college and was back home visiting over winter break. 
for Christmas, he gave me and my other brother, who's only 14 months different in age from me, a very highly advanced war board game called Panzer Leader. It was way too difficult for me with far too many instructions. Games are supposed to be fun, and I found no fun in reading instructions. However, the brother I was sharing the gift with, he did find fun in learning a new game. So I figured within a week, he'd be teaching me how to play. That's generally how all of our board games went. But before he could figure out how to play, after Matt went back to college, Panzer Leader mysteriously disappeared. We had no idea where the game had gone. A few weeks later, I was at my best friend's house across the street, Joey Trupiano, and I saw on his game shelf in the, bas- in the basement that he, too, had Panzer Leader, which really surprised me. I told him how cool it was that he got the same game that we got, which was when he explained that was my game, and the reason he had it is because my brother traded the game to his brother for a bag of weed. I was livid. I was so angry, and the first chance I got, I was going to get back at Matt by for trading a Christmas gift for drugs, which is about as sacrilegious as it gets for a 12-year-old Chuck Mertz. I bided my time, waiting for the precise moment to strike, and the next time Matt visited, I found it. His big-ass bag of weed, hidden behind the books on our shelf in the room we shared at our parents' house. I immediately ran downstairs to give it to my mom, screaming, Mom, Mom, I found Matt's marijuana. When I showed it to my mom, my older sister interjected, explained it was tea, and my mom said, Oh, Chuck, that's tea. Matt always carries tea on him. (laughs) I said, Mom, that's pot. Leslie's wrong. I didn't know what happened next. For years and years, until I admitted to my brother what I'd done. My version of the story is, or I mean, sorry, his version of the story, the version that he told me from his perspective, his story of that bust was he was sleeping in, fending off a hangover from a night of partying, and my friend, or my parents, uh, came into his room and standing over his bed, my dad in his booming voice said, Is this yours? My brother came out from under the covers saw the bag dangling in my mom's hand, snatched it from her fingers, then courageously hid under the blankets and said, no, it's not mine, go away. They told him he had to pack immediately. My dad said he never wanted to see him again. I had no idea where Matt was for the next six months. Neither did my parents. They eventually got worried, asked friends. Nobody could find him anywhere. So they called the county sheriff to put in a missing persons report. Matt was broke. So when he went back to college, he was couch surfing for a while until some really old hippie gave him a place to sleep in a barn with a goat. He and my parents rebuilt their relationship. He became closer and closer with them as he raised his family. He really got a taste for goat's milk. Meanwhile, when I got older and was smoking weed, if my mom would ever find a bag of mine, she would place it neatly on top of my clothes from the previous night which were all ready, neatly folded, washed, dried from the previous evening's fun. So thanks, Matt, for the sacrifice you made so I could get high without any parental repercussions. You will be missed. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what's the hot fashion trend for spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your message at our, or your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer 
By the end of today's show, following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff hears the quiet part loud. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah, let's do a couple now, and then I get to the rest after Jeff. All right. So uh, what is the hot fashion trend for 2021? Spring 2021, David S. says kitschy T-shirts that say, my parents died from COVID, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. If I see one of those T-shirts ever, I will burn it. Tynaness says sackcloth and ashes. Now that's good. And uh, Peter J says 2019's long vanished tan. <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know all that stuff. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. The quiet part out loud. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. You probably heard that Texas's power grid seceded from the union in order to let the necessity of life utility sector legally enslave the people to their price gouging and negligence, and that there were consequences. The following is meant to tar our entire dumb austerity culture, though it will smell like it's just for Tim Boyd, the recently resigned mayor of Colorado City, Texas, in the zone of desolation where the electricity mongers pulled an Enron with an extra twist of the knife in the back. Tim Boyd wrote his constituents a polite letter explaining the nature of the neoliberal social contract between the state and its subjects in the new millennium. Well, okay, he wasn't exactly polite. He was quite rude, to tell the truth. But his Facebook screed was explanatory. It laid out in simple, straightforward prose the ideal relationship between the general public and the for-profit authorities. It was as clear an explanation as the one Senator Ted Cruz acted out in his interpretive dance to Cancun, away from the state in question, abandoning his post a fitting performance to illustrate his uselessness, and although he returned to the failed state he fails to represent, once so ensconced he persevered on his useless course. Tim Boyd's missive begins with his thesis, No one owes you or your family anything, followed by a semicolon where a comma would have sufficed. Proper punctuation is the least we are owed by our elected officials, but Boyd makes clear that even such a modest gesture is too much to expect. Clearly, neither the people of Texas nor their families are worthy of a thoroughly proofread document. He then specifies from whom the abandoned and shafted people of Texas ought not be so whiny as to expect any type of aid or support. The city council, along with your power providers or any other services, owes you nothing! I could here mention the subject-verb-agreement error. I could easily proofread the whole damn thing and fix the numerous mistakes. But I don't owe Tim Boyd anything. He's never given me anything but a mild headache. The city and county, to whom the people presumably pay taxes to the best of their ability, or avoid paying taxes to the best of their ability, apparently owe nothing in return for those monies. It's enough for them to collect taxes and keep them in their pockets. Anything they do beyond that will, I guess, cost extra. 
As for the power providers or any other services, they not only don't seem to owe the customers whom they hold hostage anything, they're even billing them thousands of dollars for power that was recently priced relatively reasonably, though at above market even then. I don't know how Texans will respond to electricity bills for thousands of dollars a month, but as part of a raw deal Governor W. Bush signed into law in 1999, according to past This Is Hell guest Greg Pallast, forcing the state's hapless customers to accept any price the free market dictated. Enron CEO Ken Lay showed his appreciation by becoming the number one donor for W's presidential ambitions. Sink or swim, it's your choice, Boyd continues, here bafflingly utilizing the comma splice at just the point where a semicolon would have been an appropriate fit. Clearly, though, Boyd isn't about appropriate fits. His fit is entirely inappropriate, albeit educational in content. Sink or swim? But it isn't one or two or even a dozen people sinking, it's the entire ship. Boyd is telling an inanimate object made of riveted steel that it has a choice. This is pure animism, which goes against Boyd's uh, later statement that God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like this. So suddenly he believes in God? A God who gives tools, no less? Sounds like a hardware Father Christmas to me. And Boyd comes across as quite pagan. A pagan animist shouldn't be slandering the upbringing of anyone else, yet that's exactly what he does. He blames Texans' upbringing and their laziness, then goes on to blame, and I quote, a socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few work and others will become dependent for handouts. So awkwardly phrased. Feed the people to believe... You couldn't feed me enough barbecued brisket to believe that. From where I sit, the many actually work, and the few collect money from them and give them nothing in return. Boyd says this is sadly a product of a socialist government, but it's not. It's a predictably disastrous product of an insanely capitalistic, privatized, and unregulated utility system that is holding his constituents hostage to the whims of its executives. He's confusing the symptom, people left by their resource gatekeepers without water to drink or power to heat their homes, with the disease, out-of-control capitalism. He also fails to acknowledge the human-caused climate changes linked to extreme weather, but he is a pagan, and they tend not to believe in anything burying a toad at midnight under a full moon can't fix. And even so... He doesn't owe it to anybody to bury a toad at midnight under a full moon. As a mayor, his job is to take bribes, make deals for his friends, and embezzle tax cash. And that was the sum total of his duties, besides dispensing tantrums. He concludes with not one, but two bottom lines. Bottom line, quit crying and looking for a handout. And after a brief sentence, again, bottom line, don't be a part of a problem. Be a part of the solution. Man, two bottom lines. Dude is really serious. Still not serious enough to proofread, though. He wrote a second message explaining the first and complaining about people's reactions to his attacking their character, their strength, their upbringing, their abilities to provide for their families, and the position of their asses in relation to an implicit armchair. He complains that his wife lost her job due to cancel culture. I would never harass you or your family to the point that they would lose their livelihood, such as a form of income. 
he has to specify form of income because the human needs for warmth and drinking water are weaknesses he thinks it is perfectly fine to attack. Apparently some citizens sent him death threats to which he objected, as do I. I say, skip the threats and get right down to business, you lazy Texans, or are you all talk? Don't you each own a half dozen firearms apiece, as is your right by constitutional invitation? Well, come on! That Second Amendment isn't going to exercise itself. Does Tim Boyd have to do everything around here? As I said, this is all meant to tire the entire culture of austerity the people are trapped in and the for-profit authorities have adopted. Extreme abundance, wastefulness, and lawlessness for the privileged few. Less extreme abundance, waste, and lawlessness for their wheel greasers in government. An abrupt drop-off after that, and then an even more precipitous drop-off to the slaving poor and the lumpen, who make up the base of the neoliberal pyramid scheme. The culture of as little as we can spare for the many, as much as we can grab for ourselves, is the opposite of progress. We are going downhill. The system is a mistake. Tim Boyd is only its most buffoonish example. Tim Boyd and Ted Cruz, it's neck and neck. There are counterexamples, too, but they are short bursts of Michael Phelpsian effort against the raging current. In the sink-or-swim ethos, guess what most of us are expected to do? I will say this, though. The Texans affected by the fallout from the Texas power grid secession are indeed rising to the challenge, help, helping each other, even if they don't owe it. When the philosophy of government is that the response to Hurricane Katrina was a public relations nightmare rather than a failure of the government by public consent to act in the public interest, I start to think the monkey shines on January 6th weren't enough for these chumps. By withholding power from the people, they make clear they need to see more of the power of the people. <sighs> I guess we owe them that. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Good day. All I could think of when you were talking about that is how uh, late uh, mutual friend of ours, Danny Thompson, would do voiceover work, and he did voiceover work <laughs> for uh, Texas politi politician's campaign. And he did this really intense Texas accent, <laughs> and he did it for me. And I was like, man, don't people in Texas find that offensive? And he was like, I guess not. You know, they keep hiring me to do this politician's campaign reads. And I was like, that's so weird. Why wouldn't they just have a Texan do the commercials? Why would they have some guy up in Chicago who's never lived in Texas as far as I knew? I don't, maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, so why would, he, you know, why would they have him do this? And he said, dude, the advertising agency is in Chicago. It's not in Texas. So you're going to get somebody doing impersonations of Texans, not Texans here. So that's just the way it is. Now I go, well, why didn't they hire a you know, Texas advertising company? And that's kind of where the conversation yeah. ended. Danny Thompson was from Bonacqua, Tennessee, by the way. Bonacqua, Tennessee? Bonacqua, Tennessee. Jesus. For good water, yeah. Tennessee? Yes, interesting. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> hey, I had a question about Matt. What's that? So years ago, and I may have this wrong, and I, I could easily have this wrong. I imagine, or I remember, that you told me a story about when Matt was elected constable and got <laughs> and be, and uh, he he got 
the NRA automatically sends you membership yes. if you're an elected law enforcement official. <laughs> yes. And so Matt got his NRA membership. And of course, he, you, as you explained, it, or as was explained in the obit, and I think you've explained before, uh, he refused to carry a gun despite his job description. <laughs> but he thought it would be funny to show up to the public uh, membership award ceremony uh, in person and... Uh, and so they called his name, and we were sitting there, and he got up and made a big show, which was not a difficult thing for him, of stumbling toward the stage <laughs> and knocking over chairs. Yeah, um, yeah it, was, it was either that or it was a TV appearance. I can't remember exactly what it was, but yeah, he made this, he did this big shtick about how he was pretending, he was acting even more blind than he was because he did not want to carry that gun. <laughs> Jeffy. Thank you yeah. very much. Uh, you sent me some really kind words about Matt, and you had oh. conversations with him. I know you enjoyed his company, so I appreciate everything that you've said. So. Oh, man. Appreciate the man. Appreciate you. All right. <sighs> Let's leave it there. Stay right. beautiful, my friend. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, today's show, I should say, Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, yeah, what is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? Friends at Hypocrite Reader, recommend their site, says, shedding your limbs, sprouting gills, and returning to the waters your amphibious ancestors left so many eons ago. That is so good. That is so good. Adam B. says, the Chuck Mertz teardrop and Luxembourg tramp stamp. Not sure why they're wasting time on the obvious. <laughs> Neil C. says, monogrammed ventilators. TG says, chunky boots with those on-sale mink coats from Denmark marked... <laughs> COVID-19 hurts animals, too, on the inside label. What is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? Eat Fart 69, old pal, says, a mask with the words brunch printed on it to go over the three masks the CDC suggests us to wear. Rock Taster says, groundhog trapper caps. <laughs> nice. Jessica B says, ostrich pillow, the original napping pillow. <laughs> Nurse Kobe says, form-fitting body bags for hot bod spring break corpses. And finally, A.T. Moore says, Hoop dresses. I like Tynan sackcloth and ashes. Lisa saying an extra twenty yeah, pounds. Man, that's, that's, the, that's the best. Yeah, that, yeah, I think so too. Uh, but also Sean saying pants. Michael LP saying the richly moisturized pelts of the wealthy. Jack saying designer body bags. There are so many that were body bags. And I did like Kramer's suggestion: baseball cap with outward-facing uh, forehead temperature readout. Also available in knit and fedora variations for the hipsters or MAGA red to own the chuds. I thought that was really good. But my favorite answer to this week's question from Hell: What's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? It's the same as Alex's favorite answer. Lisa, you are the winner of this week's question from Hell for replying an extra 20 pounds. All you have to do is just send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and we'll send it to you ASAP. My answer to this week's question from Hell, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? For me, it appears to be a lower back brace, maybe ice packs, and unfortunately, too many coffins. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Now, we're not going to be doing a show on Monday. I want to thank all of you for allowing me to indulge myself. Thanks for your patience over the past week while I'm trying to deal with the passing of my brother. Uh, I'm going to be doing that 
all weekend, so I'm not going to be here on Monday. We're going to be back here on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on Patreon. Alex, who is on Tuesday's show? Hey, for Monday, I'll figure out something for the archives, so I'll play that on the live show on the podcast, too. Thanks. Uh, so when we get back, uh, Tuesday, Miriam Kaba is going to be on to talk about her book from Haymarket, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. She's been on the show in the past. You should go back and listen to our interview with her, K-A-B-A. And then on Wednesday, Ruth Milkman will be on to talk about her new book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, which I'm really excited about. That's come highly recommended. I remember having a conversation with Kevin Harris in like 2001 saying, we'll never get Ruth Milkman on the show. So either we're doing better or she's doing worse. <laughs> yeah, one way to, which one do you think that is? And then uh, Thursday, we're uh, very excited for a 60-time arrestee, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> Uh, Kathy Kelly is going to be on the show, uh, one of Chuck's favorites. Uh, she'll be on to talk about her piece for the progressive, remembering the first Gulf War amid the ongoing horror. It's important to find ways to atone for war crimes, including reparations. I love that lady so much that I hugged her so hard once I cracked her ribs. Huge mistake on my part. This week's Hangover Cure, it's not the only person I've done that to, apparently. I've heard other reports. This week's Hangover Cure is Spratt's. Or sardines, thanks to this week's guests, including Sean O'Leary, the principal author of the new report from the Ohio River Valley Institute called Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties, contributing more to the U.S. economy and getting less in return. You can find that report at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org, and you can follow Sean on Twitter at SeanHO'Leary1. Also, thanks to historian Raquel Varela. And if you did not hear that interview, go back to Tuesday and listen to the interview that we did with her on her new book, A People's History of Europe from World War I to Today. This was Raquel's second appearance on This Is Hell. Raquel was on back in July of 2019 to discuss her just-published book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. And you can find both those interviews now at our website, thisishell.com. Thanks to yesterday's guest journalist, Nick Bolin, who wrote the article, This Land, I'm sorry, The Land Was Ours, Trump, Biden, and Public Lands, which was posted at The Drift, which you can find at thedriftmag.com. Nick is a freelance journalist and correspondent for High, Count, High Country News at hcn.org. Follow them at High Country News on Twitter. Find out more about Nick's writing as well as more about Nick at nickbolin.com. And follow Nick on Twitter at npbolin, B-O-W-L-I-N. And thanks to today's guest, Ray Levy-Ueda who wrote the Baffler article, Bleak Future for Water. Find her on Twitter at Ray Levy Ueda, and find out more about Ray at our website, RayLevyUeda.com. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2007 conversation with the late, great Howard Zinn. And I'll be going back up, to, back up north to small-town America to see how they are reacting to the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at Patreon.com. Slash this is hell. Thank you, Alex, for producing today's show. Thanks to all of this week's guests. Thanks to our other producers, Richard and Jess. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.